You're listening to DraftKings Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Oh, wow. Breaking news here. Apparently, Phil Jackson, according to ESPN, is advising the Lakers on their coaching search. According to ESPN, Phil Jackson, welcome to the party. Or did he actually leave? Tom, this can't be breaking news to you. Come on, man. We done told you a long time ago that Jeannie Buss's circle of trusted advisors, first of all, the hand of the queen is Linda Rambis. Let's start there. And then the rest of the high council are Kurt Rambis, Magic Johnson, and Phil Jackson. He's kind of like herpes. He never goes away for good. He just kind of fades. Into Montana. Winning time season, what, season two? Season three? Season 12. We got a lot more winning time to get through before they get to this. Losing time, season one. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, 
and you don't know where the f*** it's going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but... all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by my Basketball Illuminati sergeants, lieutenants, captains. Why are we getting demoted it's a every week? Role every time. We were generals, and then we were captains, and now we're sergeants. Like, what's next? Private? Seaman first class. I was moving my way up. Little taxonomy here. My generals. Thank you, Amin El Hassan, and producer Anthony Mays. We've got a slam show for you. We got Paralibus Vulgaris himself on the show. He is an NBA better who bet hundreds of millions of dollars Literally. in his own words. He also spent three years with the Dallas Mavericks as the shadow GM, and he is going to come onto the show and explain what really happened behind the scenes at the Dallas Mavericks working for Mark Cuban and his former colleague, Donnie Nelson. Also, we're going to talk Luka Doncic with him and some of the little tricks of the trade of how he uses his Twitter account. But first. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El Hassan. All right, on The Agenda today... We are going to have to talk about this Draymond Green story because everyone's talking about it. And the fact that the fix is in that Draymond Green gets ejected by Kane Fitzgerald. They go to the tape and they decide that his foul on Brandon Clark was deemed a flagrant initially. And then they reviewed and then they said, yep, he's out of here. And he goes egging on the crowd like a WWE wrestler. Fantastic theater. But I mean... There's more to this story than what meets the eye. People aren't really focusing on the fact that what was this referee crew doing in the first place in a conference semifinals game? Let me just run through this. You want to know the facts about referees? You want to know the information? Well, Tom, I think we got to remind people again that you fans at home or like the layperson, you watch say, oh, he's a good ref. He's a bad ref. And it's kind of subjective, but we here at Basketball Illuminati, because we're devoted to the truth and we're devoted to the fair truth, the balanced truth, the only truth. We devised a rating system, and the rating system is not based on my opinion or Tom's opinion or Mays' opinion. It's based on whose opinion? The NBA. The NBA's opinion, based on how they classify people. Again, you can go back and listen to episode, which episode is it, Mace? Episode three, Zion's Landing. We go into all that, that rating system how each ref who works a game is assigned one of three positions. Tom created a scoring method to sort out. Which referees the NBA trusts? Exactly. According to the league, right? And five is the highest you can get. 5.0. Think about it like a Yelp score. Or your Uber rating, five-star ratings for referees. If they are always the crew chief in the regular season, they get five points for every game. And if you're the second in command, the referee two, which is actually called referee, you get three points. And if you are the umpire, the third slot of the NBA referee crew on a given night, you get one point. So the average referee is a 3.0 and the best 
referees make the postseason every year, and it tracks pretty closely as the highest rated referees make the postseason because the NBA wants the best referees for the postseason. And then they have a chopping block where they whittle it down as the rounds go on and you get to the finals. There's only like 12, 13, 14 referees still left right now in the playoffs. They have 36 referees trimmed down from anywhere of 64, 65, 70 referees in the regular season. But the weird thing is, I mean, is that in this game, we have the Golden State Warriors, which as we have revealed time and time again, the NBA puts their best referees on average on the Warriors games. And this game, not so much. Memphis Grizzlies, Warriors, game one of the conference semifinals. They had Kane Fitzgerald, who has a 5.0, a James Williams referee who has 5.0 score. But then Jedeminas Petraeus, umpire, the third slot on this game, has a 2.13 referee score. That's not good. That's below average, ladies and gentlemen. Average is three. Keep your third eye open, everybody. There are three sides to a triangle, folks. And if one of them isn't up to snuff, you don't have a perfect triangle anymore. So this is a referee who the NBA did not deem good enough or high quality enough, trusted enough to be a crew chief at all during the regular season. But when it comes to conference semifinals, they want him on this game. And it was, by many accounts, a poorly officiated game, lots of controversy, and it just didn't seem like they had a control. Remember late in the game, Amin, Mays, when the ball went out of bounds in the last few minutes of the game and they just threw up their hands, the referees, and said, we don't know who it was off of. Yeah, they just like looked at each other and everyone hit the shrug, the shrug emoji. How does that happen? It's the playoffs. Playoffs? What were you looking at? Playoffs. Because they're all supposed to be looking at different things, right? Somebody's job is also to look at what happens to the ball as Dylan Brooks slaps it out of bounds, right? Right. What were you looking at? The ball went one way. Which was the same way that Dylan Brooks's arms were going. The Warriors' arms were going in the other direction. Hmm. I wonder who is off of. And not one, not, not two, two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. All three referees looked at that same play and said, I don't know who is out. This is the playoffs, it's the conference semifinals. And I imagine that. If there was a more, I don't know, higher quality or more reputable referee crew, that that doesn't happen in this game. We had a couple of referee mishaps in this game, Tom, didn't we? We had the block charge with Steph Curry. We had the flagrant two Mm -hmm. on Draymond Green. And I think there are flagrant fouls every year, all the time, that people dispute. Was that a flagrant or not? Was that a flagrant two or a flagrant one, right? There are block charges every single game where people dispute, was that a block or a charge? Sadly, this doesn't rise to the level of truth teller as a segment, but I think we all pricked our ears when someone who reportedly works in the replay center revealed via Twitter that the replay center actually advised the referees the opposite call of what the referees ultimately went out and called. Meaning, Draymond Green, flagrant two, replay center said flagrant one. Meaning, Steph Curry charged. The replay center said block, but they were overruled both times by Kane Fitzgerald, who was the crew chief. That's right. And this tweet went fairly viral. It did viral. <laughs> it's viable and viral, Tom. That's right. It's both. The thing that it revealed, if this was accurate, again, we're not saying that it's true. Allegedly. But what it shows us is that when the referee makes a call and the crew chief makes a call, in this case, Draymond Green flagrant two, and then hears from the replay center Ah, we see this as more of a flagrant one. It introduces 
a little bit of confirmation bias for referees. Did either of you know that they had the discretion to disagree with the replay center? Because I didn't know that. I thought the whole point of going to the replay center is because they were going to point out something that you didn't see or you didn't know. And that's kind of like a safeguard. What's to stop someone's pride, I guess, from making the call they want to make to say, I got the call right? When we went deep on this, I mean, in episode one of Basketball Illuminati, we went inside the replay center with Don Vaden. We were talking about one specific issue, which was three pointers, foot on the line, foot behind the line, which is pretty black and white. When the replay center makes a call like that, they have the time to accurately see the difference. In a situation like this, it still comes down to subjectivity. It still comes down to someone interpreting the play, the call. And so to be fair to Kane Fitzgerald, it does make sense to me that it is left up to his discretion. Sure, but you're leaving open the possibility, Maze, that people are very proud and they have a confirmation bias where they're going to say- Referees? (laughs) (laughs) I know, can you believe it? Oh, man. Who's going to own up to a mistake, a referee mistake, as high caliber of ejecting a star player from a playoff game? And being like, oh, yeah, my bad. I was a little too strong on that. If you're going to go as far to say that was a flagrant two, I have a very hard time believing that Kane Fitzgerald, who is a longtime referee in this league, who's been in the finals, being like, yeah, my bad. I got that one wrong. And the issue I also see here is now you got Draymond Green going on his podcast and he's talking about that play. Did you catch the little line there about the league, Maze? Yeah, of course. You know, I'm connected to... Draymond's producer, Jackson Safon. We talk in our little producer network behind the scenes. I didn't know that even existed. Yeah. It's another level of the Illuminati. Wait, there's a dark web? What is this? We just push the buttons. We don't put this on Main Street. You know, when, when they reviewed the file for as long as they reviewed it, I said to myself, I said, hmm, I wonder what could they be deciding that's possibly going to take this long? I'm actually dumb enough to think I wasn't going to get a flagrant one. Talk about an idiot. You want to call anybody an idiot? Look no further than Draymond Green himself. He had a hard time telling. He said, and it's going to be a flagrant and like long pause, like pause, two. So you see what he did there, I mean? He kind of towed the line. He didn't cross the line. <laughs> and he didn't say the thing, but he kind of said it, it which is that the referees didn't want him to play. The, the referees wanted the Warriors to lose, which I disagree with that. Have you seen the ratings? Yeah. And also, I don't know if you experienced this, Tom and Maze, but I was at Suns versus Mavericks game one, and there were a couple of plays there, questionable fouls. Not questionable whether they were fouls or not, but questionable as far as the type of fouls they were. And on Media Row, I'm sitting there and Vinny Goodwill's over here and Mark Spears and everyone else is there. And we're just refreshing Draymond's feed to see his reaction to everything. And he's kind of echoing all those points that he was making on his podcast of if that were me or I've been ejected for less and little eye emojis and all that. Real quick, I want to bring up Brandon Clark's comments about Draymond's foul. You know, he's been known for flagrant fouls in his career. I've watched them on TV my whole life, it feels like, so I wasn't really shocked. What Draymond did, I can understand if the wind-up, you deem that to be a flagrant one and he catches his head. It's a basketball play, but he caught his head and that's a flagrant one. But Kate Fitzgerald said after the game, the pull-down from the jersey grab and throw down to the floor 
to an airborne vulnerable player makes that unnecessary and excessive. Did you guys see him throw him down to the floor? No. I saw the opposite. I saw him grab the jersey and hold it up to ease the fall to the ground. I didn't see Draymond throwing down Brandon Clark. That is, to me, a gross overgeneralization of that play. Does it mean anything to you that the league, upon further review, did not rescind the flagrant two? Well, again, I don't think that the league wants to go against its own referee that did a review system. Because then what we're doing here is we're saying not only did the replay center not matter, but the referee's call does not matter. So what are we doing here? If the NBA has set up a replay center to review those calls and to give the best possible information to the referee on the floor, the referee on the floor overrules that, and then the NBA overrules that, then what are we doing here? So there has to be some consistency in what is the rule. Because if the NBA is overruling the referee who overruled the replay center, then it just seems like, man, no one can agree on anything. I want to take a different angle on this, by the way, and talk about something that hasn't been talked about at all. I was having a conversation again on Press Row yesterday with Jessica Shobar, who's a great producer for Sports Center for ESPN. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I talked to her on the producer network all the time. There you go. <laughs> so one of the things we talked about was the idea that you get four flagrant foul points Yep, before you're suspended and then escalates from there. Whoa, halfway there. So the idea is that as we have progressed as a league and redefined things that weren't flagrants before to be flagrants, like, for instance, closing out on a shooter and leading with your foot, like, for instance, a foul that wasn't intentional but was considered to be reckless, can we now raise that limit from four points because it's a lot easier to get a flagrant in today's basketball than it was 20 years ago mm. so why are we still using the same threshold for suspension in the playoffs given that so my take is when draymond green also goes on his podcast and says the thing that you're not supposed to say where he doesn't actually say it but that the fix was in for the warriors to lose that game the NBA does also have to kind of hammer down on him a little bit there, right? Yeah. Like the flagrant two not rescinding it is also taking into that account. Whether they can actually say that publicly or not, I think that plays into that ruling as well. I mean, I'm with you on that idea for reform. And the reason I am is the NBA should be trying to have the best possible product. And the thing that bothered me the most about the Draymond ejection was that it immediately shifted the way we talk about that game. And Stephen A. had the same point at halftime. They should be talking about the great basketball that was being played. The Warriors managed to come back and win, but if they hadn't, it would have been cast into doubt about why that was. I am really enjoying this particular series. I think it's a great contrast to styles. I don't want there to be a shadow cast over it by the league, by the refs, that we're not getting the best possible product. It just doesn't make sense to me why they would bring the spotlight to themselves like that. Well, I think if you talk to players, they say that the referees want their name out there more. Like when they're doing the camera of zooming in on the referee to announce their ruling on a particular play, that didn't used to happen. Oh, I thought you were going with a different take there in terms of when they're zooming in on the camera, the one referee asking the other referee, who is Jack Harlow? Look, man, just because... Jason Concepcion can name David Guthrie Foul Bay. Doesn't mean that he's becoming a star. He's never going to be as big a star as Scott Foster, which is where I was headed with that yeah. Jack Harlow reference. And Scott Foster, Tom, as of the recording of this episode, is going to be 
repping the Warriors game. And I know there are a lot of Warriors fans who groan like, oh, Scott Foster. And I ask you, Tom, in the chat, we always hear about, oh, so-and-so does so poorly against Scott Foster. Oh, this team, this player against the spread or overall the money line, they do so poorly when Scott Foster's in their games. And I asked Tom, I said, Tom, is there anybody who like should get happy when they see Scott Foster is in their game? Warriors fans, that's who should be happy. Why do you say that, Tom? Warriors fans should be thrilled with Scott Foster being named to the referee crew for game two against Memphis. And here's why. Stephen Curry has played 21 playoff games in which Scott Foster is refereeing that game. Do you want to guess, I mean, what the team's record is in those 21 games? 21 games, I would say 12 and 9. That sounds like a, a pretty good clip, right? Yeah, well, you got to be higher than that, actually. Way higher than that. 16 and 5. What? Win percentage of 76%. Wow. Wait, hold on. The Warriors, Tom, have been a great team for a very long time, particularly in the playoffs where since 2015... They're 19-2 and two in playoff series. So isn't a lot of that just a function of a great team that wins a lot? Well, in all other playoff games with Steph Curry playing, the Warriors have a win percentage of 68%. So actually the 76% with Scott Foster is significantly higher than their normal win percentage. But the big thing here is against the spread. So yeah, I mean, I see your point. They're a good team, so they should normally win that many games with Scott Foster. Who cares? Right. Against the spread. In those 21 games, usually it's 50-50, right? Vegas is so good at setting the spread, the, the line for a certain game. Do you want to guess the Warriors record against the spread when Steph Curry is playing in Scott Foster games? Okay, against the spread, this one has to be more conservative, right? So right. I'm going to go 12 and 9. <laughs> 12 and 9, is that right? Oh, sweet, I mean. Oh, is it my turn to be poor, sweet, innocent? <laughs> oh, so naive career against Scott Foster, according to NBC Sports Edge Finder, 15 and six. (laughs) Oh, my God. 16 and five outright, 15 and six against the spread, which is the highest that I have found among star players with Scott Foster officiating. So here's my question. Is this like the league saying are bad to the Warriors? <laughs> mm. We're just asking questions here. I just ask a question. I mean, Chris Paul is two and seventeen against the spread with Scott Foster officiating, and Stephen Curry magically gets him in game two after what happened in game one. Oh man, I can't wait when this podcast drops to find out what happened because this game will have already happened. It's taking them behind the curtain and showing them how the sausage gets made in the podcast game, I mean. Mm. Speaking of sausage getting made, on our next segment, one of the most famous basketball people the last couple decades in the NBA, he's going to say he's not because he was just behind the scenes betting on his own. But what an interesting, fascinating figure in the NBA world, Horalibus Vulgaris, will be joining us and telling the truth about his experience in and out of the league. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Bob, welcome to Basketball Illuminati. How are you, man? I'm good, guys. What's going on? Oh, not a whole lot. Just truth telling. You know, it's tough business out here in these streets, Bob. I can imagine. Truth telling my experience doesn't get you far in life. So just keep that in mind, guys. Oh, I like this. Mm, well, our numbers would disagree, Bob. Wow. Kiss asses go far. I mean, they really do. Like people who are super, super pliant will just make their way. I mean, you can go far telling the truth, but some people can't handle the truth. Yeah. It's a delicate balance between pandering and truth telling that we do here like we're just so thrilled to have you on this show you're such an amazing <laughs> guest <laughs> we can't wait to get your opinion on some of these stories that are going on in the nba i've been dreaming about this moment more than you guys know for so long how's that how are we doing so far wait literally you've been dreaming about a mean you told us pre-show i mean was in my dream last night it was the strangest dream ever that i'll keep to myself it was not anything it was very g-rated dream but it was odd I watched the game last night, Dallas and Phoenix, and I think that had something to do with it. Yeah, we'll go down that memory lane a little bit on the Phoenix side. Was Amin in that dream for seven seconds or less? <laughs> he was. Yeah, it was weird. I think he was in for like 10 seconds. There you go. New personal best. <laughs> so it's great to have you on because... I didn't realize how much I missed your tweets until you started tweeting again. So I wanted to ask you, how does it feel to be, you know, firing away on Twitter again after what, three years with the Mavericks? You're now back on the Twitter. I tweeted a little bit when I was with the Mavericks and definitely got like a few like, hey, you can't do that anymore. Hey, what are you doing talking about that? To be perfectly honest, it felt great to tweet about basketball more. It felt good. Like I definitely missed that camaraderie. It's fun watching playoff games, tweeting about basketball. But it also, to be perfectly frank, felt great not being on Twitter. So Twitter for me, TweetDeck in general, I think is just such a life suck <laughs> that it's a love-hate relationship. Like it's habitual where I just click on it in my bookmarks toolbar. Like, okay, I'm going to go off Twitter for two days. And then you're just clicking on it. You're randomly clicking on it without even thinking about it. So, But it is great. The analysis on Twitter, I think, during the playoffs and the back and forth. I do think NBA Twitter is the best Twitter by far. How do you filter it out, though? Because I've found that in recent years, everything just feels like a very 
low-level wine across all of the feeds and stuff. And I'm at a point where, like you, I'm just not on Twitter anymore like that because I can't filter out to get to the actual good tweets. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, especially when I was gambling, I think my wine level was high (laughs) because I'm someone who never physically or visibly gets upset. But I was a keyboard warrior. Like a lot of my tweets that were anti this strategy, anti that strategy, not a lot, but definitely some were like, this is fucking with my bet. Why are they doing this? You know, like, <laughs> why doesn't this coach realize all he has to do is attack that way? So there is a lot of whining. I think there's also a lot of people who are, I mean, it's like everything. Everyone thinks they're smarter than they are about basketball, gambling, and probably sex. Those are the three things where everyone kind of overestimates the ability. <laughs> but gambling while having sex, very underrated. Everyone's very good at that. Gambling on basketball while having sex. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> the trifecta there. I don't know. I don't mind the whining too much. I mean, there's certainly some guys who are very, very confident and self-assured in their opinions. It can be annoying with some of them. And I'm sure some people thought, and still think bad about me. But I try to be a little bit more thoughtful when I actually present less stream of consciousness, but like more of like an opinion on something backed up with data. You know, like here's why I think this team is making a mistake by doing that. And here, here's some things they can exploit. And here's like a little plot to show it. So I don't know. I like it. Overall, I think it's a positive. I can't tell. Sometimes I feel like you're trying to play us, Bob. I feel like if you're trying to win a bet, why are you telling people on Twitter how you feel about a certain thing? Like, I feel like that's influential and counterproductive to winning a bet if the market is like, oh yeah, that coach is going to get destroyed by that other coach in this series because they just don't know how to win that matchup. And I'm like, Bob, you're hurting your own bet, aren't you? I don't care about betting anymore. So I don't bet an amount that would be meaningful. I don't bet much ever at all in basketball. I mean, I certainly didn't bet at all for the last five years, two years prior to working for the Mavs officially and three years as well as we're obviously. And then even now I haven't. So to answer your question, it doesn't matter. This playoffs, I've given my opinion on stuff. Yeah. And because I don't care, it's not something that's going to financially materially impact me. But when I was betting, I will say there was a lot of misinformation for sure. Asshole. (laughs) Never you should bet this game and I bet the other side. I would never do that. I would never do that. But why would I give away an edge for free? That's what I'm saying. Even for strategy or anything like that. There was a lot of that, but not a ton of mis... I mean, I wouldn't say a lot of misinformation. The misinformation was more like everyone thought that my gambling edge was based on halftime totals or whatever. And I never really corrected that. I think I've only ever given out plays four or five times in my life. And one of them was on the Lebatard show. What's that? <laughs> yeah. I gave two out on the Lebatard <laughs> show, actually. I think I gave a total once. And then I gave in the 2014 Heat Spurs series. I had already got down, so it didn't matter. I had already bet. But it was kind of stupid because I think I could have got down. It didn't matter, though. The line moved for the series. I thought the Spurs were like... I remember talking to like an NBA GM at the time. And I was like, this is a five-game series, maybe six max. Like, this is the biggest overmatch you could ever imagine. He disagreed. <laughs> Wait, the GM did or Dan Levitard disagreed? Yeah, Dan doesn't really Dan doesn't really disagree so much as he likes to provoke. So because he's more of a provocateur. So I think those are the only ones I've ever really given out. This playoffs, I've kind of like hinted, like during the Bucks Bull series, I was just like, how is this total 229? Because just looking at it, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a bet on it, but I was just like, this doesn't make sense to me. One team literally cannot shoot, and the other team is welcoming those shots. Milwaukee legitimately wants you to shoot threes and Chicago had very few players who could shoot threes. 
And so it just became a battle of like, how could they possibly score points in the series? Didn't, didn't seem possible. I think every game went under. The opening total started at 230. And by the last game, I think someone can correct me, but I believe it adjusted down to 214 and a half or 215, something like that. Bob, I want to ask you a question. You said you didn't gamble the two years prior to working for the Mavs. Probably closer to three years. Yeah. So it's been about five or six years. What made you stop beyond obviously the contractual stuff working for a team? When I officially got hired by the Mavs when it was announced but I had already been working for them two years prior in a consulting role. Right. Not like as a team employee, but I wasn't around the team all the time. I was remote. Uh So that was why. And then prior to that, it just became like very small to me. There's a lot of misconceptions. Like I think a lot of people, I could make a decent amount of money gambling, I think still to this day, but relative to my total net worth, I've just got very lucky in other investments. And so it just became very small. Beyond the revenue generating aspect of it, was it never something that you found joy in or you got a high off of? No, I did it for 20 years. And when you do something for 20 years, I'm a very competitive detail or I want to be the best at what I do. And so in order to be really, really good at gambling, it's a huge time commitment. It was 80, 75 hours a week during the season, more. And I just didn't want to devote that much time. It was so bad that I would not go out when there was NBA games on because I would want to watch. So like you're basically your social life during the NBA season is nil. It certainly impacted relationships that I had. It just wasn't very rewarding anymore. And then, you know, I don't mean to demean the amount of money you could make, but the swings that I would make gambling were just minuscule compared to the swings in cryptocurrency trading. So social life while you were gambling versus social life as a front office executive, probably the same, to be (laughs) honest, I probably worked more. I probably spent more time working with the Mavs those three years than I did. It was different because there's so much, even stuff that wasn't work when you're traveling with the team, you're just on bus, then you're, you're waiting for your keys to get to, then you go to the hotel and then you have a meeting. And so there was no social life there either, but it was more social because it was a collaborative in-person environment, whereas gambling can be more of a solitary endeavor. You've been behind the curtain with the Mavs. You've been in a consulting role for teams. I'm wondering what people think a job running the quant staff or running analytics for an NBA team, even working for Mark Cuban, what is the biggest difference between the perception of working in the NBA and a decision-making role like you were and what the reality is? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think I don't even know because I'm fairly certain that the Mavs were not like your typical NBA franchise. (laughs) They had a practice facility where everyone operated out of their offices and there was no office for me. So my office originally was at the Mark Cuban companies, which is in the business offices, which is attached to the practice facility, but it's like a five minute walk. No, it's like a, it's like across the parking lot, but it's a big parking lot. Like imagine a shopping center parking lot. A Texas parking lot. Yeah. A very big, yeah. So, you know, like I was there the first few days, they're like, this is your office. I'm like, yeah, I'm just not ever coming here. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sit here. And, and my team worked there. I had a, a quant team that worked there that I hired. They weren't there before. So I have built out a small team and they all work from there, but I, I worked from my apartment. And then I also worked at the practice facility. I just co-opted the conference room. I was like, okay, this is now my office. And people were like, why is Bob in the conference room? And I'd be like, well, where do you want me to be? I'm not a cubicle guy. Were you interrupting a lot of conferences? No, it wasn't a team conference room. It was like the NBA union is having a meeting with some representatives. They're going to use the conference room. Someone from the outside outside the organization would have their conferences in their 
So sometimes I'd come into work and there'd just be like eight strangers in the area. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fine. I mean, look, to be perfectly frank, I didn't see the need to be at the practice facility very much. Like I'm going to go watch a practice, maybe chat a little bit with the coach on the sidelines. I was never talking to the players aside from like, hey, what's up? Good morning. That type of thing. I was never like involved in that part of the organization at all. It may or may not have been a typical NBA franchise because later on I went and saw when the Golden State Warriors opened up their new building in San Francisco. I got like a tour of it. Kirk Lagov took me on a tour of it and I saw it and I was like, oh, this is different. And then similar when I went on some stops to some other, you know, met with some other teams and saw. And so everyone, every team has their own idiosyncrasies, I'm sure. But we, the Mavericks were kind of a fly by the seat of their pants family, business. It was a different vibe. There's a story that The Athletic talked about in their story, but also you addressed, I think, on Pablo's podcast on ESPN, where I don't think, Bob, you knew who was running the 2020 draft or making the picks for the Dallas Mavericks until it like kind of happened in the war room. It's like, wait, am I, am I making these picks? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like before I got to the Dallas Mavericks, like, let's just be clear. I don't know what's going on now. They have a GM. I'm sure he's running the team as a GM. I don't know. Mark was the GM of the team for the entire time I was working there. He's an owner who's hands-on. He's the guy. And so Tim McMahon wrote an article about how Chandler Parsons was effectively making decisions at one point. (laughs) And so I think to answer your question, did I know that I was going to be... I mean, I don't think to say that I ran the draft or making the picks isn't really fair in some ways. It's just the day of the draft, I was there just happened to be seated. It was a weird situation because you had COVID. So everyone was spread apart. It was like a racetrack environment where like the tables were set up in a square with a giant area in the middle. Yeah. And yeah, the day of the draft was not a fun, like that's the day where I was really like, oh, wow. I knew that Donnie did not want me around before that. It was never expressed to me, but I could tell there was like a competitive, we need to get rid of this guy. We have to do something, undermine him. There was lots of stuff that happened that I never really talked about before. But the day of the draft, there was actually, there was some stuff, there was some drama. There's always going to be disagreements amongst people. Right, right. But it just became like a weird... Tension. Tension, yeah. I may have said that someone got upset and, and went up to his office. I mean, look, it's not like he went to his office and sulked or anything. He went to his office to work the phones and try to do the deals that we were trying to have done. Mm-hmm. We were trying to trade up for... A different player. He was trying to do his, his, his other stuff. But yeah, there was a situation where I think it became clear to everyone else in the room that the two of us were not going to be able to work together. I was very political enough. I can be very fair. I don't think I did anything wrong. Like I can say that people can say, oh, he's arrogant. He's this, he's that. But like, I'm here to give him my opinion on something and back it up with why I have my opinion. And because I'm primarily a data guy, I have some data to back it up. I make no bones about the fact that I have never been promised to be or pretended to be a collegiate expert. Give me a player who's been in the league for a year, and I think I have a very, very good opinion on them. Give me a player who maybe has played in other professional environments. Sure, I don't like the college game. I find it boring. Right. You're not watching it nearly as much. What is your objection to it? Is it the data isn't enough of a sample? Is it noisy? It's a different sport, bro. Like they're not playing NBA basketball. (laughs) They walk the ball up the court. Let's cycle the ball. Let's get into the post. Let's pass it out. Let's drive. Let's kick. It's a college environment. All the things you said are true. The sample size is small. They're young players. You're predicting how someone's going to play as a teenager and then progress as an adult. But you knew Luca. You knew that guy. He's playing against men. He's a 17, 18-year-old playing against men. And these guys are kids playing against kids. And there's also just a huge disparate, like, okay, you're a power five school, but you're playing against 
some random team. Yeah. Yeah. There's not enough games, but it's also just not like if you were to tell someone this is basketball and you showed them and they knew nothing about anything. I mean, the three point line is different. The rules are different. It's referee different. When you watch Luca now, what emotions do you feel considering you went to Mark Cuban? I think you've mentioned that, you know, you're in a consulting role, but if they were able to acquire or pick trade for Luka Doncic in the draft, that you would really consider taking a full-time job and moving to Dallas and essentially working for the team full-time. Yeah, not even that. Like the way it went down was I worked as a consultant for the first year, signed a deal, was getting paid a stupid amount of money for doing what amounted to not a ton of work because I was always remote. The dream. Yeah, it was not a lot of involvement. The next year it was like, hey, we, you know, we don't really want to pay that, that much. I was like, pay me whatever. Let's renegotiate whatever the contract was a one-year deal. And then he's like, well, it only really works if you're full-time, if you're on staff, if you're, if you're here all the time. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not really comfortable doing that. And then the weeks or I would say a month or so leading up to the draft, just in messaging, it wasn't like it was a personal conversation over the telephone. Mark's not a phone guy to begin with that much anyways. Yeah. It was kind of like, hey, you really need to get this guy, do whatever you can. You know, I think I even made like a statement, like I would bet that he becomes an MVP candidate. I think I said that in one of our cyber dusts. <laughs> I would come work for the team full time if you got this guy. But you know, leading up to the draft, I didn't get the sense that because I was never talking to Donnie and his little henchman. So I didn't really know who they liked. I'm sure he liked him, obviously. But I don't know that there was much of a trust in I don't know if Mark really had much faith in Donnie Nelson's ability to draft for whatever reason. I mean, they did a great job. They drafted Jalen. That was all of them. They did a great job with that. That was an amazing pick. But if you take away Luca and Jalen, the track record had not been great prior to that, with the exception of, you know, they could have got Giannis, maybe whatever. You know, the funny thing about, about, about those things is like everybody has a really, really strong opinion after the fact. Hindsight. And so I know very, very intimately who people liked in that draft. Within the organization. Yes. On the staff, whatever, who they like that draft. And it wasn't like it was a unanimous from talking to people. Donnie was, I really like this guy, but there's a real, how much are you willing to push? It's kind of nice to push a little bit, but if it doesn't happen, then you can kind of just forget about it. And then if he ends up turning great, now you can talk about it even more. If it, if it turns out bad, you can kind of just be like, mm. I think the guy that they wanted to pick if they weren't able to make the deal was going to be Wendell Carter Jr., which... Mm. I'm fairly certain that's true. And I also know that some other people in the organization who were, who were big decision makers thought Marvin Bagley was the guy. <laughs> Luckily for them, he got off the board, right? Yeah. But also like, look, this is hard. Yeah. People laugh, joke, whatever. Like the draft is hard. Like every really, really sharp NBA general manager who I respect, and there's a ton of them, all have the same opinion that you don't want one pick. You want as many polls at the machine as possible. Like it's a crapshoot. Trying to predict what an 18 and 19 year old, 20 year old is going to do when they're 24, 25. It's a joke. It's absurd. All right. Put me five years from now, what Luka Doncic is in the NBA. Cause right now he's 22 years old. Might've just turned 23. He's averaging 33 points a game in the postseason for his career, which ties him with Mike. Yeah, Michael Jordan. Now the scoring is inflated and the small sample size versus basically one team and then Utah and then, but make the argument for me that he's not going to go down as one of the top three players of the modern era. Make that argument for me. I can't. Yeah. I don't know if there is one. He's not going to shrink from six, eight. Just objectively, like, why wouldn't he be? Why can't he be as good as LeBron? There's reasons. 
but what are they, right? Maybe not as good on the defensive end, but offensively, why can't he be as good as LeBron? I mean, better because he can shoot threes. LeBron could shoot threes. Luca's career three-point rate isn't outstanding. But isn't the way that he gets to the three-pointer a little bit more diverse? Yeah, he's got the step back. Yeah. And he's got a higher volume, but it's not like LeBron can't shoot threes. It's just the game was different when LeBron was coming up where not many people welcomed the three-point shot. In fact, like if you go back to that Miami Heat series in 2013, he was basically gifted him three-point shots, games one through seven. And game six, I believe he took five threes, might have made one of them, just going off the top of my head. And in game seven, I think he took 10. And I remember because I was sitting like four seats from Pop. So I was having a dialogue with him all game. Just one way, by the way. He was not engaging. <laughs> but it was a one-way dialogue. And I was just like, yeah, that's not going to work. Nah, it's not going to work. Because you could see he was comfortable taking the three. And I, I actually watched the warm-up. He did his warm-up. He did his usual thing. But he spent a lot of time shooting above the break threes, much more so than he did, it seemed like, in game six. But anyways, LeBron is a good three-point shooter. Luka is a more of a volume shooter. But that's more a function of the league than anything. I guess I feel like he's still got some baby fat to him where he hasn't even filled out his body to the point where he's able to leverage his strength. Watching last night's game... He was doing everything for that offense, everything for the entire game. And yet he kept going and kept going and driving and kicking. Man, if this is what he's doing when he's 22 and clearly not the most ripped guy in the league, if his fitness level improves by just a little bit, I just feel like he's going to be unstoppable offensively. Yeah, that's a valid point. I mean, he has treated the offseason. There isn't the commitment that LeBron has to his body. And I think LeBron obviously naturally has a different set of talents physically that Luca just doesn't like if neither one of them worked out, LeBron would look a certain way and Luca would look a certain way. But that being said, LeBron spends millions of dollars on his training in the off season. Yep. But if Luca did that, that would be very scary. Now he's probably doesn't have the genetic ability to be as ripped as LeBron based on what they looked at when they're younger and then looking at like whatever. Couldn't he have like a Kevin Love glow up at some point. (laughs) Good. Certainly. All these comparisons are kind of lazy. First, it was like, oh, he's a little bit like Larry Bird because they're both white. Yeah. I made the Harden comparison. Yeah. I think he's clearly, clearly more gifted than Harden is. Like, I don't even think it's close. You know, I'm watching that game last night and he did everything. But to me, it feels like that comes at a detriment to the overall team offense. And obviously, Harden did the same kind of thing in Houston, where it's this overly ISO based offense that with cheap rudimentary quantitative analysis, you could say, well, this is the greatest points per possession chance that we have each possession. But it feels like that doesn't work or it only works up to a certain point in playoff competition. Is there something that quantitatively say that ISO basketball is not good even when it can look like it is the best possible outcome. Maybe. I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I think the thing that people miss, and this was kind of like the talk last year at the end of the playoffs is like, oh, well, he's got to learn how to use all the chess pieces or whatever. Who is going to create on this roster aside from him? Well, Spencer and Jalen. Spencer Dinwiddie is not a terrible player. He's a fine player. Jalen Brunson, sure. I think part of it is, especially it was really glaring in the Utah series because the Utah games where Luca was out, they attacked, they hunted the worst defensive player every time down, but it was in a very like you take one, I take one, then we took one. But like, it depends on the coverages. Phoenix is not switching. They're playing drop coverage. 
I would much rather have Luca versus drop coverage than Jalen versus drop coverage. Where it really gets to be, I think, where you could share the ball a little bit more is maybe like a willingness to play a little bit faster and in more transition, which it, it seems like that's the plan for them, the series a little bit, is to, is to push, push the ball a little quicker. I guess my question is in a more generic, maybe not specific to this series, but the idea that is there a way to represent that? And in the same way that I, I would say like a baseball pitcher who throws great fastballs, right? 102 mile power fastballs, but like there's a value to throwing a pitch that's not a fastball, even when your fastball is so unhittable. But to me, I mean, like when you're watching Luca, he's running those high pick and rolls with Dwight Powell and sometimes he, he steps into a three pointer. Sometimes he's probing in the lane when they do a drop coverage and sometimes he attacks the rim. Right. So even though it seems like he's going one-on-one, there is some off-speed pitches, so to speak. There's absolutely a diversity in what he's doing. I always think about, to me, you want to put stress on the defense on two levels. One is the physical stress of, I've got to stay in front of this guy. I've got to keep this guy out of the pain. I got to take this physical abuse. But then there's a mental stress that you want to put on him. And I always think about like the weak side defenders, when I'm guarding a guy who I know, the only thing he's going to do is stand here and wait for a catch and shoot opportunity. It makes my mental stress as a defender much lower. I disagree. You think so? Yeah, I disagree because he's not that guy. So the first thing I think he's looking at, I don't know, I'm just speaking up, but he's looking to see where the low man is and who the coverage guy is on the pick and roll. So if that guy comes in, he's going to make the pass. So the stress for that guy that you're talking about doesn't have the stresses is, am I supposed to come and help and be the a tag guy or be the low man? So there's a level of stress there. But it's still lower than if that guy's moving. They're moving. It's not a traditional 5 out offense. There's some cutting. There's some off-ball stuff. They run a ton of stack. They do run some off-ball actions. I think the thing to look at is like, how good is Jalen Brunson? How much do you want to have him take the load off a little bit? But here's another thing I think that people, again... This is just my own amateur psychologist. I think he wants to be the guy. Oh, of course. Like if you look at the first game after the KP trade, I can't remember what he scored in the first quarter, but I think it was a lot. <laughs> and so like, okay, what if they had like a Devin Booker? Or what if they had a Chris Paul? Or what if they had someone? I mean, I'm sure he wants to win. I'm not saying he wants to win his way. I'm not saying that at all. But there's just like a certain part of him that I just feel like... He relishes it. Relishes it. And almost, he's very hard to play with in the sense that his IQ is so high. And if yours doesn't match his, that upsets him. Same with LeBron, CP, and Draymond. Same, LeBron, I was say- same with me. <laughs> well, that's why it's tough to do this podcast with you guys sometimes. But yeah. Bob, I want to ask if you could take anybody in the NBA to be the perfect wingman to Luca. The best guy, I've said this forever. And I said this like, we need to wait for this to happen, which is why I think the KP deal was such a unnecessary overreaction and, and impulsive. We don't even know what this guy is yet. We're trying to find his running mate is Drew Holiday mm. because he checks all the boxes. He is arguably the best wing defender. He certainly was a year or two ago. Now everyone says Mikel Bridges and I guess some people say Marcus Smart, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He can hit a three-point shot. He can drive. He can. He's just like so good and he's durable in the sense that he can play a ton of minutes. You know, people talk about the Celtics defense, switching defense and and the length. I mean, the Mavericks would have Luca, Drew, Dodo, Reggie Bullock, Kleba. Good fucking luck scoring on that. I mean, that's your, your smallest guy is like however tall Drew is. Mm-hmm. But that's the guy for me. And he obviously wasn't available the year of. But like when Milwaukee got him, if Dallas had the picks that they gave up in the KP trade and they had some other assets, it could have been, it could have been doable. That's like hindsight. But I've always been a Drew guy, always. I want to switch gears here for a second, Bob, and read you a line from, I believe, 2008 from an ESPN article by Henry Abbott. 
with Bob Volgaris. However, I have a hard time believing, this is you talking, that Doc Rivers could ever make up for his in-game strategy. Yeah, I'm not talking about this stuff. I'm not engaging in what I said in 2008. <laughs> I don't want to, I mean, I said so many things in 2008, Tom. No, no, no. I'm getting to the point, not talking about that 2008, but the punchline is Rivers is certainly the guy you look to if you want to know what not to do. You were saying Greg Popovich, if you want to know in-game strategy, like if you want to nerd out. I don't agree with what I said then. <laughs> I think that having more of an appreciation for how difficult it is to coach on the inside gave me a lot of, like I said so many stupid things in 2008 because I was like this guy who was on the outside and was just trying to get notoriety by being obnoxious in some ways. When was the moment when you were with Rick Carlisle and the Dallas Mavericks where you're like, I was so dumb with some of these takes. Like I didn't know what coaching was. When you were blind, but now you see how hard it is to coach. There's just so much more to, first of all, okay, I'll say this. Judging a team's performance on their head coach is ridiculous because there's a staff of people behind him. Even like the Popovich thing that I said, yeah? Evaluate Greg Popovich's record and his ability to game plan and strategize post Budenholzer. So was Budenholzer responsible for the beautiful right. game stuff? And the like Budenholzer left the Spurs and then instantly went to the Hawks and they were the number one seed. And I will say like of the most innovative coaches, I'm a guy who studies the game at a level that is very detailed. And when I'm doing my coaching stuff, like trying to find ideas, first team I would go to would be the Milwaukee Bucks. And what are the Bucks doing in this scenario? Like scout teams, how did the Bucks play this team? And the other team would be the Raptors. And so to answer your question, the Doc Rivers thing, yeah, I mean, I don't agree with Doc Rivers' approach, in-game approach, but there's much more to coaching than that I learned because I come from a analytical or a robot <laughs> mindset of like, Humans don't have any emotions because I don't really, I didn't really, I'm a very methodical, but my point is there's a lot that Doc Rivers probably does in terms of like, he's a great leader of men. I think he showed that during the Sterling stuff. I think he showed that in the bubble during the Black Lives Matter stuff. And so there's more to it than that. And getting players to run through walls for you. Like I could get someone to run through a wall, but it's probably because I've got a bag of cash sitting somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> What's the opposite of that though? What's something that when going on the other side, like, yeah, they've been doing this wrong the whole time. You gave it more credit or deverence prior to being on the other side. And once you got on the other side, like, oh, this is how you guys do it? This is wrong. Good question. I don't know. I think like once you see how the sausage is made. So just to give you like a brief insight into the Mavericks, Rick Carlisle, ton of respect for him. I had a good working relationship with him, although it was combative because he likes combative. That's his style. But it wasn't ever like, oh, I don't want to work with this guy. It was almost like, oh, I like working with this guy, but fuck, is this ever going to be a mental warfare every time? <laughs> He's always kind of let his defensive coordinators coach the defense. And so, you know, he offers some input, but like when I was there, our defense coordinator ran the defense period. Jamal Mosley ran the defense, his coverages. It would always be, what are we doing in this game? This is what we're doing. Okay. And then RC kind of ran the offense and everything else and the structure of the team. But as an outsider, you must be like, oh, look how bad the Mavericks defensive coaching was last year. And now look how good they are now with the exact same roster. That's a reflection of Jason Kidd versus Rick Carlisle. But really it's probably a reflection of Sean Sweeney versus. But then on top of that, like maybe you could argue the players didn't want to play hard for Rick Carlisle or Jamal Mosley for whatever reason, because there wasn't a connection there. And Jason Kidd is the connector. And maybe if Mosley was in charge, things would be different. I personally don't believe that. I believe that the defensive stuff that we were doing 
was in a lot of ways, I just was like, okay, this is interesting. I tried to understand it. I tried to learn more. And I spent a bit of time working with Jamal. I, I actually liked Jamal as a person, but I didn't think he felt that I had much faith in his ability as a coach. And so it became kind of awkward. So DeAndre Jordan right now with the 76ers. I saw you at like mid game. You were like, what are the odds that Doc Rivers starts him? In <laughs> I really didn't think they were because I haven't <laughs> been following the Sixers too closely. Yeah. And I really didn't think he was going to start him. I have a personal, because I was a Clippers fan, had season tickets, courtsides for them for a number of years when they were the Clippers, the Lob City teams from 2012 all the way up. For basically the time they got Chris Paul, I became like a season ticket holder. And I just never saw it with DeAndre. Like I just never saw it. And I think Doc was his hype man in the press. Like he needs to be defensive. Oh, yeah. Because I think that was the motivational. Because that's the one thing I saw about DeAndre is he needs motivation. Quick story is like we would have meetings and they would be like, can you please beg DeAndre to play hard this game? Like Mose, can you please, can you talk to DeAndre about crashing the glass? Can you talk to DeAndre about, because it was just like he required you know, I don't know that he had the fire that say like a Luca would or whatever. Yeah. So that was an honest question. I honestly thought, I honestly gave the odds just to tell you how bad I am at predicting these things. Uh, I thought it was maybe 25% that he would start the second half and or play significant minutes just because I was watching, but Hey, I don't know. I don't know as much as Doc Rivers. He's a champion. I'm definitely a champion, but not at coaching. So. <laughs> I mean, when Doc Rivers is saying after the game, we talked to our guys and they actually wanted DeAndre Jordan out there for the second half. What's going on there? Decode what Doc is saying there. I think this is kind of what Bob is alluding to is sometimes it's not necessarily the smart play or the right play or the winning play, but it's what gets you buy-in from everybody else. And if everybody else has that feeling, I think about 2010, I want to say, when Robin Lopez got hurt. Instead of starting chanting Fry, we started Jaron Collins. And Jaron Collins would play like 12 minutes a night. He played like the first six minutes of the first quarter and the first six minutes of the third quarter. And that was it. Yeah. So it's like, why are you playing him? And he wasn't that good or whatever. But it's like, that was the rhythm that the team liked. They liked Channing coming off the bench. And then we'll close with him and we'll do all that other stuff. But we want to get started off these halves with Jaron in there. Yeah. Sometimes you just do it like because you're peasing. My armchair psychological opinion on this is I've seen this with Doc a little bit. It's a stubbornness. You know, there was a famous like, why don't you guys ask Pop that question? I think like, and I've had this myself. He's defiant. He's like so pot committed to being right about this. But then that's part of what I know. Then the inside stuff you talked about, there was something very similar. I think it was game six or game five of the bubble playoff series where we were having a coaches meeting and I brought up something and I thought it was like, this is a brilliant idea. Like we should do this. This is Kawhi Leonard. And everyone was like, yeah, but Silas, who was our coach at the time, brought up a great point. He's like, if this doesn't work, the players are going to be like, what the fuck? Right. And you don't want to lose that. But I don't, I don't know that the players would be like, what the fuck for DeAndre Jordan in 2022. But I think the part of that also is this part you could probably speak to way better than I can, but I suspect DeAndre Jordan is one of those guys who's like the most loved teammate ever. He plays the social game great. He's an expert at it. Because everywhere he goes, people throw themselves, no, he's got to be on, no, he's got to start. I'm like, why are people sticking up for this guy? And I thought about it. It's quite obvious. He's a nice guy that guys like and they like to be around. And so there's an affinity there that I think is helping him or boosting him in the eyes of his teammates. Possibly. I think also there's the idea that Harden's security blanket has always been a role guy yep. who can finish. And he has that ability. But there's just a huge disconnect. Look, 
this isn't to disparage him. Well, I guess it is, but it's like, <laughs> it's more a function of he's not at the peak of his career. It's just fair to say, yeah. I'm 46, bro. I'm not the peak of my career either. Like I, my mind isn't nearly as sharp as it was when I was 30. Wait, 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 Bob, you just said 2008, Bob. Sure. Was a wild <laughs> oh, yeah. man with all these takes that you can't <laughs> condone. But now you're saying that maybe 2022, Bob, you can't condone. Which is it? Well, my public takes were to be a specific type, which is how am I going to get I mean, I'm not stupid. How do you go from being a sky cap <laughs> to a professional gambler to being in an NBA front office? It's not by being a wallflower. Mm. A long play. 2008, nobody knew who the fuck I was. And how do I get people to know who the fuck I am? Well, I do these interviews and I say something that might be sharp. And then I say something that might be sharp. And I say something that might be super controversial. And I might even believe it. I probably did believe it. But I was also probably a little bit more of an arrogant asshole back then. I don't know, Bob. I think you're at your peak right now, buddy. It's only going up. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Pander. Remember, guys. Pander. (laughs) Pander, pander. I'm definitely more empathetic. I'll say that much. Mm. When you're on Twitter now watching the NBA and you see, I don't know, conversations about a certain player... Do you still have that? I see where the market is or I see the conversation about a player and I think he's super overrated. Is there a way I can leverage this? Leverage it for what though? For ga- I'm not gambling. I already said that I have no interest in gambling. I'm like, what? what do you keep asking me about gambling? It's like- you've bet over $100 million gambling. I know it's over a 20-year career. Over but- a 20-year career, bro. If I had, if everything lined up for me and I had a great year betting on NBA basketball, I would make $12 million, I think. A lot of money not something I'm going to devote my life to. I'm 46 years old, bro. What am I trying to do? What am I doing to stack it in a corner in a closet somewhere? Like you can't, what am I going to do with more money? It doesn't add anything to my life. I think the thing that people don't realize is I'm not walking into the casino and making bets in my name. Right. I've got to find some guy, you know, Dan Bilzerian to make some bets for me in London. I got to find like all these like weirdo people that I'm working with as my beards to make bets for me. In the 2000s, I was certainly dealing with illegal bookmakers and this and that. Asian people in the Asian market, people in fucking Eastern Europe. There's no legal (laughs) marketplace where someone can be successful in the United States of America, period. How much easier slash harder is what you're doing now with crypto? I don't do anything with crypto other than buy and hold. But if you start buying and holding at $200 and something goes up to $40,000, pretty easy. The emotional swings are much more difficult, assuming you have that part of your brain that actually gets upset when you lose money, which I don't. I made the mistake of confiding in Coach Carlisle as to how much of my net worth was involved in crypto and how much that was. And Bitcoin literally went from a slow death march from like 9,000 down to like 3,000. And he was like, well, you lost a lot of money. Are you going to be all right? I'm like, yeah, I'll be all right. He's like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you can afford it? Court side? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can afford it. I saw the price of Bitcoin. I don't know how you do it, but it just doesn't affect me. So maybe I'm not being clear, but I'm not going to spend any amount of time that's going to take away from other things that are enjoyable to me to increase my net worth by like 1%. And that's just not happening. And the door is still open for you to get back into the NBA, just in a different role, in ownership, like that sort of thing. Ownership would be my goal, but I'm, I'm not quite at a billion. So, and the team seem to be going up in value. And I'm also not LeBron James. And I'm fairly certain the next team that transacts will be for him. He'll get it. Which team? Whichever team he wants, probably. <laughs> He's like, the league is going to give LeBron a team. I don't have any inside information. I just, why wouldn't they? It would be great for the league. He wants to own a team. He make a great owner in the sense that he deserves it. And if a team became available, whether it's an expansion team or a sale and the league got to choose, I'm sure they would choose him. Why wouldn't they? Ownership aside, you're not jaded by your experience. 
Like you'd want to try this again? Uh, I think I'm jaded by my, <laughs> my lack of intelligence as to how fucking stupid I was when I was working on these teams. Like, like I had no idea that it was a Game of Thrones backstab. Like if you would have told me that someone may or may not be extorting <laughs> the Dallas Mavericks allegedly for $100 million in order to keep his job, allegedly, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But fast forward to 2022, and now we have a lawsuit that's alleging that the former general manager of the Dallas Mavericks extorted them for $100 million to keep his employment. So imagine that that happened, and it did, in terms of like the butting of heads between Donnie and Mark and the closeted chief of staff. Imagine that happened. That's about as fucking bananas as it gets. Right. And then imagine all the other little things that could happen in between. So I was just like, yeah, this guy knows I'm better at analyzing players in 2022 than he is. He's asking me for my opinion. He surely knows that his time here is like, why wouldn't he just go away quietly? I just was like so stupid. I didn't realize these guys would like literally try to break laws, allegedly, to keep their jobs. Dude, it's the craziest thing because obviously I didn't have as high profile a role or exit as you did. There's hard to find, I mean, there's like hard to find one that was more like Oh, I mean like- Calangelo in the last five years. There's a lawsuit going on in Phoenix right now. So it's, it's not like it's not without its sure. fun stories. But the thing I walked away from, when people always ask me, well, you don't want to do it again? I say, no. And they say, why not? I said, because- for four years, I lived a fantasy life. Hmm. I worked with Steve Kerr and David Griffin, who are good people, who give a shit, and everyone was genuine. Hmm. And the Game of Thrones stuff, it was minimal. What about the people down below that like were trying to claw their way up? We were so small that I was the people down below. Okay. <laughs> he was the assistant director of pro personnel when there was no director of pro personnel. I was an assistant director. There was no director. <laughs> it was a weird situation. It's like being vice president. Like, who's the president? Well, there is no president. I'm just a vice president, right? So we go from that to Lon Babby and the other guy. And I'm still kind of naive, wet behind my ears, thinking like, well, so we're all doing the right thing. And and then I realized really quickly when I have a conversation with the other guy, he says, what do you want out of this? I said, I want to help us win a championship. He said, no, 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 no. That's what everyone says. But what do you want out of this? I want to help us win a championship. What do you want out of this? And his thing, he starts to tell me like all of his personal career goals as he is the general manager of the team that he's trying to achieve. And I'm like, what? It blew my mind. Yeah. And I'd work for the Knicks, mind you. Yeah. And then like slowly but surely over the coming months, I realized, oh, that wasn't the NBA that I was experiencing. This is the NBA where people would do stuff. I remember I had in a report and they were like, well, you got to put your name on it and all that stuff. And I'm like, why? You guys want this information? You asked me, I give it to you. He's like, well, so that they know that you're the one that did it. I was like, I don't give a fuck who gets the credit for it. But everything was so credit-based. Like, everyone was trying to leap up and say, oh, it was me. It was me, boss. I-, I was the one that came up with this idea. And it blew my mind. And so when people ask, do you want to ever do this again? I say, no, because the only situation I can imagine is, A, either I'm in control. That's not going to happen. Or B, I'm working with people that I know and I trust and there are no outsiders in here in this circle. And I'm like, like Michael Jordan. Yeah. That's not realistic either. So it's like, well, why do I want to do this? If all I'm going to do is be frustrated mm. by all the stuff that's not the job, yeah. which ironically is what happened to me at ESPN. At first it was this great job. And then at some point I reached a point where 90% of my day 
was the Game of Thrones shit. Yeah. And 10% was doing the job I'm getting paid to do. And that's not fun. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if I wanted to go on Survivor, I would just go on Survivor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. But I'm with you. Like, I wanted to win. This is exciting. Like, I loved coming up with strategies, game plans, ideas that could help us win. I love that part. I really did enjoy working with our coaching staff, with the exception of like maybe a few instances or, or whatever. So I did like that. But even that was kind of political too, where it felt to me as though things were presented in a way that if they went wrong, the thing I realized is all of these guys want to keep their jobs because the money is so different. Just people who in the NBA worked their way up from the video room and did the whole thing. And now they're making, you know, four or $500,000, whatever. Some are making even more. Where are you going to get that job in the NBA? Like I lost money working for the Dallas Mavericks. Right. Lost money. Forget about the missed opportunity of no longer gambling. Like I was not living in the US before. I was a Monaco tax resident. I was living in Monaco. And now I moved to the US and now I'm a US tax resident. It cost me money doing the job. And it took three years of my life that I could have been focusing on other things. But I still enjoyed it. And so to answer your question, would I work again? Probably not. I've had opportunities. If I wanted to, I could have pursued a couple of opportunities immediately after, which is why when I left, I basically said I was not coming back in March. I told RC like, hey, oh, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you think is happening, but I'm not coming back here next year. He's like, oh, you're going to be here. I'm just like, dude, like you're out of your fucking mind. I'm not coming back here. <laughs> but yeah, it's not something that I'm thinking about. Or I mean, some teams have reached out and there's been some, hey, would you like to? And I'll be like, yeah, I'll take a meeting or something like that. But I can't imagine it'd have to be like the perfect storm of events. And the one thing I realized is, I mean, I've said this and people are like, what an obnoxious prick. But like, I really do consider myself to be someone who likes to act with integrity. And so I want to work with people who are of the same mindset. I don't lie. I don't try to underhand people. I don't have to take credit for things that aren't mine. I just, it's not something I've, I've always been that way. Like I've, I've tried to always operate my life with integrity, but it's something that I'm more cognizant of as I get older. And it's very important to me. And so working with people who don't match that I'm not interested in that. Working for someone, they would have to be a really special situation. And who knows? I could still get lucky and maybe get a piece of the team or maybe own a different franchise in a different sport mm. if, I, if I want to get into something competitive. You heard it here, folks. Breaking news on Basketball Illuminati. Heralibus Vulgaris is going to be joining LeBron James's ownership for his next team. Oh, I'm going to buy a futsal franchise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to get into the high game and challenge Hi-Li. these clowns, Chris Cody and Mike Ryan, take the chip back from them. In Miami. No, there's no clowns. Those guys aren't clowns. They're hardworking. That's right. People who are trying to perfect their craft. <laughs> Love this guy. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on Basketball Illuminati. You can follow him on Twitter at Haralabob. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us. Anything you want to plug? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm starting a Patreon and a Substack. And I wouldn't, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, both. I've got nothing to plug other than my vanity Twitter, I suppose. Follow me or don't. I don't really give a fuck. Awesome. <laughs>
right, so I was driving around the city, and I saw a billboard. Joe Coy, Funniest Funny World Tour, Chase Center, May 6th and 7th. And on the billboard, they had May 7th, crossed out, sold out, baby. Joe Coy, he's big in the Bay. Oh, wow. Were you trying to go to that? I don't have time to be going to stand-up comedy shows. I got too much truth to tell, Tom. Joe Coy, he's Filipino, isn't he? He sure is, I mean. Man, I told you about the Filipinos on the Levitard show, man. We got to watch out for them. Pablo Torre. Eric Spolstra. Yeah. Jordan Clarkson. Andre Blotch. Wait, 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 wait. May 7th, Chase Center? Chase Center. It's going down. Sold out. That can't be unless he's the halftime show for the Warriors game. That's game three. Wait, what? Tom, no. They wouldn't double book. That doesn't make any sense. I'm looking at the schedule right now. Saturday, May 7th, Grizzlies at Warriors, 8.30 ABC, game three. Wait, but game two was last night. So shouldn't game three be Thursday? It's Tuesday, game two, Saturday, game three. They're giving him three days off? How did the Warriors of all teams say, yeah, let's book some comedy acts during the NBA playoffs? They thought they'd be the high seed. Well, who's laughing now? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.